Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Anybody felt anxious lately? No, not at all? You know, I can't think of a time in my 60 plus years on this earth that the world has been this anxious. And there's plenty to be anxious about right now. The COVID in general that's going on, the divisiveness that's within our country, the racial unrest, Anarchy in some of our major cities, financial stress, job loss, uncertainty, the election, no matter which side of the, of the debate that you're on. There's a lot going on that would cause us to be anxious. And now our president and first lady are positive for COVID, as well as many of their staff, and we need to lift them up in prayer. Well, God, through the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, tells us not to be anxious. Would you read this with me? Do not be anxious about what? Anything, but in everything. Wait a minute. Not anxious about anything, but when everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think that's a very good scripture to hang on to right now, don't you? Don't be anxious about anything, because there's so many things to be anxious about. When you do this, when you, when you learn to not worry, and, and, and when you pray about everything, and you've learned to thank God for all the good things, and to look to him to meet your needs you'll find peace. And it isn't just mere words. Many of you have been Jesus followers for a long time. And I know that you know this. I know that if we ask for testimonies, we could get testimonies here from people who have followed Jesus for a long time, and even some who may not have followed him for very long at all, who could tell about times when they have put their anxiety aside, when they've thanked God when they've lifted up their prayers and they've looked to him to meet their needs that he came through and gave a peace that transcends the world's peace, transcends the world's understanding. It says to thank him. Do it with thanksgiving. Well, I think one of the best ways to thank God, to thank Jesus, is to be like him. And we're going to begin a brand new series today that I'm, I'm calling Not That, But This. Say it with me. Not that, but this. If you look at Jesus' ministry as he would teach and as he would inspire and as he would build people up and as he would raise people up and then send them out, he constantly drew a comparison between heaven and earth, between the way the world did things and the way the kingdom of God was run. He would say, I want you to notice men's ways and, and listen. I've not called you to that. 
I've called you to this. I want you to live God's way. He was constantly drawing a comparison between our system and God's system, between the way we think and the way that God thinks, between the way of the world and, and the way of God's kingdom. Jesus would say things like this. He'd say, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. And that's good, but it's incomplete. So not that, I'm calling you, I'm calling you to this. I'm calling you to something more because we're not just going to draw the line at physically murdering your brother or your sister. But this, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother or sister, that's the same as murdering them. He says, not that, but this, I'm calling you to something greater. He said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I'll tell you, don't draw the line with physical adultery. Not that, but this. If you even look on someone with lust in your flesh, then you're committing adultery. He said, you've heard it said, love your, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, that's how the world thinks. That's the way the world works. He says, not that, but this. I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Don't act like the world acts. Don't think like the world thinks. I've not called you to that, but to this. You see, Jesus draws a distinction between merely religious people and people who truly love the Lord. He says, religious people, they give to be seen. But I've not called you to that. I've called you to this. Give out of gratefulness to a God who provides for you. Give with a thankful heart, even if it's not seen. Even if the IRS doesn't give you a tax deduction for it. Religious people, he says, they pray to be heard. But I'm calling you to this. You pray because you love talking to your father. You love hearing from your heavenly father. He says religious people fast for attention. They, 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 they do these things to be seen. But I've not called you to that. I've called you to this. You fast because you know that your heavenly father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus is constantly drawing attention to a distinction between the way that we think and the way that God has called us to live. And today and in the weeks leading up to Advent, we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 5, what are known as the Beatitudes. And it's actually the beginning of probably the most transcendent sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, Jesus begins this famous sermon with about eight statements not known as the do attitudes. See, we're always looking for do. What can I do? What can I do? Not the do attitudes, but the be attitudes. Remember, the best way to thank him is to imitate him, to be like him. And so these beatitudes, not do attitudes, these beatitudes will teach us how to be like Jesus. Because even in a divided, selfish, broken, chaotic, COVID-filled world, we're still called to be like Jesus. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We're going to go through verse 12. I want to read all of the Beatitudes, the entire passage today, and then we're going to concentrate on the first one for today. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and, and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he kind of wraps it all up here. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, as we look at these blessed statements, we can see a sequence. First, we see poor in spirit, and poor in spirit is the right attitude, is the right attitude towards sin and, and self, which leads to mourning in verse 4, which leads after you've seen your sinfulness and after you've mourned to, mourned to a meekness, to a, to a sense of humility, then to a seeking and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You can see a progression. And that manifests itself in mercy, in purity of heart, in peacemaking, in a peacemaking spirit. And the result of being merciful and pure in heart and peacemaking is that you'll end up being reviled and persecuted. Well, well thank you, Jesus. That's just what I wanted. But that's what we sin. Don't be surprised when this stuff happens. He says, then, over time, over time, when it's all said and done, you can rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. He's saying, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the long run. You know, we, we tend to be a people that like to just, you know, worry about the here and now, right this minute, right this second. We tend to not want to be patient people. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Some of you know more about that than, than others. Now, all these things up here that I just read, they sound like contradictions, don't they? How can you be poor and blessed? How can you mourn and be full of comfort? How can you be both hungry and filled at the same time? How can you be meek and strong? How can you be persecuted and, and blessed? Well, these sound like contradictions because we are so bombarded by the world's view, the world's way of doing things. When we think through our contradictions, we're looking at them not through Jesus' eyes. We're looking at them through the world's eyes. We're looking at them through the lens of the world's economy. We miss what God wants when we do that. It's interesting, of all the things that, that Jesus could have chosen to discuss, all of the words that he could have chosen to use, all the topics he could have chosen to cover, of all the first words he could have decided to make the first word in his first recorded message, he uses this word, blessed. Blessed. In the Greek, it's the word makarios, and I've got that, uh, if, in case you haven't found it yet, on your life notes. It's kind of an outline to let you know when I'll be done, and hopefully... And uh, you can follow along, put, fill in some blanks there. It's the Greek word makarios. And it's often translated into the English, if it's not translated blessed, it's oftentimes translated happiness. But our word happiness does not do it justice. For happiness carries with it this root of H-A-P. And in the Middle English, hap means chance or, or luck. 
You know, mere human happiness is something that's dependent upon chances, and, and it changes with circumstances. And that is not what this Greek word means. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Makarios, blessed, he's, he's speaking here of a joy, a joy that sees us through our pain, the joy that sorrow, grief, and loss cannot touch. It's a word that means more than happiness. It means deeply and totally satisfied, fully content. It's a deep, abiding inner joy that remains present and constant and consistent no matter what circumstances may befall us. I'll bet that most of us haven't been happy that we couldn't have chapel services or attend our home churches over the past few months. I don't think that anybody's happy with a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world. But a person who knows Jesus, a person who is filled with his Holy Spirit and has the joy of the living God on the inside can have joy despite the circumstances. Joy isn't something that, that seems to describe very many people, though, today. You know, if we turn on the news or, or look at social media, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't see a lot of joy going on out there. Yeah, every once in a while I see someone puts a picture of a cute puppy dog or one of their grandkids on Facebook, and, and there's a little bit of joy. But, you know, most of the stuff, sometimes I just got to stop looking at social media or stop looking at the news because, you know, it's, it's just so, so negative. What Jesus is saying is if you want to look like the world, think like the world, live like the world, you're going to hurt like the world hurts. Go ahead and get all mixed up with, messed up with the crowd. Do what everybody else is doing. If you say, well, I want to be polarized and, and I want to be bitter and I want to be more frustrated and discontent and ev envious and, and fight and I want to sin more and I want to be confused, then go ahead, follow the world he's saying. But he's saying, I've got something better. Not that, but this. And I think it's interesting that we live in a world that celebrates pride. And yet when you look at what Jesus chooses to preach, the first thing he says are blessed are those, not who are proud or prideful, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the baseline he's saying. This is the, this is the first bar. This is, this is what, what, what's necessary to have the kingdom of heaven is to be poor in spirit. We're going to define that in a minute. Now, again, we're not, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not talking about the do attitudes. We're talking the be attitudes. To be poor in spirit is not something I do. It's, it's who I am. And before I tell you what it means to be poor in spirit, let me tell you what it does not mean to be poor in spirit. Because some people over the years, including some parts of the church, have, have messed this up, have missed this. Some parts of the church have thought, well, you just need to give everything away. You just need to give everything away and just live in, in total abject poverty, and then, you know, then you're going you're gonna to have the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches. Now, it does say that the love of money is the root of all evil. That is a scriptural principle. It's there. It's, 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 it's there. But it doesn't say just give everything away. There's been people over the years who have tried to do that, and they still haven't, still haven't, found, haven't found peace. So it does not, does not mean, being poor in spirit does not mean to be poor materially. But you've got to be make, ensure that your material things don't stand in the way of what we're going to talk about in a minute and stand in the way of your relationship with God. Jesus is not, is not talking about economic status or material wealth here. Neither is he talking about a, a false humility. The person who's always walking around saying, oh, woe is me, I'm just a worm. 
You know, it's not despondency. It's not referring to self-pity. I mean, I mean, we've probably all known someone like that. You know, they, 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 tell you, they, they have to tell you how, how, how poor they are and how humble they are and all this. And if you have to tell me, then you know, it makes me wonder. Don't you agree? The Greek word that's used in this passage is tokos, and it actually means absolute destitution. I don't think I wrote that one down in your notes. You can get it from me later if you want it. But this, this word is used to describe a beggar, a beggar who has less than nothing, less than nothing. He's totally, he or she is totally, totally, totally dependent upon someone else, their charity, their help, their goodwill, everything to survive. It goes beyond the mere material things. And what Jesus is saying is, blessed are you who are not dependent upon your own strength, who are not dependent upon your own self-sufficiency, your own way, but blessed are you who are 100%, totally, completely dependent upon the God who created you, the God who formed you, the God who purposed you, the God who planned you. Blessed are you who rely upon the Lord. The simplest definition I can give you of what it does mean to be poor in spirit is two words. I put them up there. It's to be honest and it's to be humble. And to be honest, I don't mean, well, you know, I, I don't, I'm not Pinocchio, you know, my nose doesn't grow when I tell, tell a lie. It means to have an honest assessment of yourself, of who you are, and even more importantly, who you aren't. It, honest and humble. Another way of putting it is happier those who have admitted and accepted their imperfections. Blessed are those who are humble about their weakness, their sin, their failure, and they're humble enough to admit that they've got some issues. Anybody here got issues? You know, let me tell you something. All God's children got issues, okay? If someone tells you to come to Jesus and all your issues go away, don't believe them because you're going to have issues. You're going to have different issues. Some of your issues may go away, but you're going to have different issues. Blessed are those who are honest and when it comes to their weakness, to their insufficiency, when they're humble enough to admit that they've made some mistakes. You see, if you spend your whole life trying to cover up and, and trying to hide the mistakes you've made, if you spend your whole life pretending that you don't have any sin in your life, it's going to be impossible. And that's a strong word, and I'm using it intentionally. It's going to become impossible to find true, abiding, lasting joy, contentment, and peace in your heart. The reality is everybody sins. Everybody fails. We all sin. We've all made mistakes. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, we've all made mistakes. The opposite of poor in spirit is proud and arrogant. It's the person who is so self-sufficient, he has an answer for everything. She has no need for God. He lacks humility. He can do nothing wrong. It's the person who, who compares himself to the crowd and not to Christ. They think, as long as I'm not as bad as or as screwed up as that person over there, then I must be really okay and, and, and okay with God, too. It's a person who denies not only his own sin, but sin in general, which is why we're given this warning in Isaiah chapter 5. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Paul writes the young pastor, Timothy, concerning the last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be 
lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving. And, you know, that, that word unforgiving, that kind of describes our, our, our world today. There's this, there's this new term that's come up in the past, I guess, six months to a year. I've only heard about it the last six months a year called cancel culture. And it's unforgiving. If you've done anything, it could be 28, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, you know, then we're just going to cancel you as if you didn't exist. You know, I mean, gosh, they, they, they were trying to rename John Wayne Airport because of something that John Wayne said years and years ago. And I understand being sensitive to people and being sensitive to, to things that were wrong and, and groups that were wrong and individuals that are wrong, but this cancel culture, it's just, it's just gotten out of control, out of hand. People are unforgiving. It goes on, he says, slanderous, without self-control, boast or brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And how does he sum it up? He says, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Jesus is saying, I've not called you to look like that I've called you to this. He says, look at me, walk like me, talk like me, think like me, lead like me, love like me, forgive like me. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is speaking to some that the Bible says were confident in their own righteousness. Now, let's just be honest and translate that. He's talking about church folk here. He's talking, to, he's talking about someone in church. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one of them's a religious leader, and the other a tax collector, someone who was despised by the, the, the Jewish common folk because he abused his own people collecting taxes for the Romans. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God I thank you that I am not like that tax collector. I'm not like other men. Oh, sorry, I think I skipped a line there. That I'm like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I got. I mean, this guy's like, you know, I'm going to impress you, God, with my resume here. But the tax collector, Jesus says, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but he beat his breast and said, God, have a mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One man thinks he's God's gift, or he thinks he's his gift to God. He thinks it's a gift to God just for him showing up, for, you know, you ought to be glad you get to see me, God, here in the temple. The other man won't even, won't even go near. The other man won't even lift his face to heaven because he understands who he is when compared to a holy God. He says, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. You see, God is attracted to humility. You know, not a single, not a single one of us have it all together. We don't. I don't have it together, you don't have it together. That may be a surprise to, to some folks, but you don't, we don't. Poor in spirit means humbling yourself before God. St. Augustine, before his conversion, was proud of his intellect. 
He was proud of his knowledge, and he, and he says it held him, it kept him back, held him back from believing. Only after Augustine emptied himself of his pride was he able to know God. Martin Luther, when he was a young man, entered a monastery, and he tried to earn his salvation through piety, through, through works, but he had a tough time doing it because it's impossible. And he woke up one day, and he realized that he had an acute sense of failure, all those years, all those years working for God, and he wasn't there yet. And he recognized his own inability to please God. And so Martin emptied himself of himself. He based everything on the salvation freely provided by God through faith. And that was the beginning of the Reformation. All because Martin humbled himself. Now before we go today, I want to give you three things that Three benefits that humility will bring into your life. Peace is number one, the, the, the peace of God. But I would even add to this, humility will bring you peace, not only with God, but it'll bring you peace with men and women. The moment you, you stop pretending, the moment you, you stop trying to cover up your sin, you stop trying to, to put on pretense, pretense by wearing the masks, you know, how, how, many of you, how many of you are ready to stop wearing masks, okay? Okay, I, I'm not talking about those, these kind of masks right now, though. I'm talking about the masks that, that we tend to wear when, when we're talking to other people, when we show up at church or we show up at work or we show up in the pools or we, we show up with our, the other people around us. You know, when we interact with people and with God, if we're honest, we tend to wear masks, not literally but figuratively. It's the mask that says, I've got it all together. I'm not hurting at all. Folks, we're all hurting on some level. You stop pretending and you get honest about your issues and your insecurities, and then that's when you find peace with God. In 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess, and the word confess is it's a compound word, con means with, and confess, speak, but basically if we agree with, if we agree with God about our sin, if we confess our sin to God, he is faithful and just to to, to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We get God's peace when we agree with God as to who we are. You know, I can't confess, though, what I don't, first of all, acknowledge. And God won't heal what I choose to hold on to. God won't take what I hide from him. But when I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive my sin and yours. So stop pretending to be strong when you're not strong. Most of us aren't as good, if we'll admit it, most of us aren't as good as we, as we put on to be. We need to admit that we need God, and we need to admit that we need his people, the church. This message isn't for some people, it's for all people. One of the benefits of humility is peace, but the second benefit is presence. And again, it's not just the presence of God, but I believe the presence of some right people in your life. Let's be honest. Is there anybody here who, who really loves being around a blowhard, an arrogant person who knows it all and, and, and they're going to tell you so? I don't think there's any of us that, that, that love being around that kind of person. You know, people are repelled by arrogance and self-centeredness, and, which is the opposite of humility. But it's not just people who are repelled by pride. The Lord is also repelled by pride. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in Isaiah 57, he says, For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. 
I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, God has no use for conceited people, but he shows favor to those who are humble. And humility is not thinking any less of yourself. It's actually just thinking less about yourself, thinking about yourself less. It's thinking of others more. It's putting God first and others first in your life. So humility will lead to the presence of God in your life. And finally, he'll enable you with his power. He'll enable you with his power. Think about the disciples. They're there on the, on the mountain outside Jerusalem, and they, they literally watch Jesus depart, just you know, ascending into heaven. And as they're sitting there, you know, just kind of looking you know, wondering what's going on. Jesus went up, you know. Two angels appeared to them. And these angels said, hey, men of Galilee, why do you keep looking up? The same Jesus that just went up will come back in like manner. It's not going to be today, though. You see, these disciples, a few verses earlier, Jesus had said, you know, I'm, I've given you a mission. He'd given a mission to, to and spread the gospel. They've been trained up. They've been taught by the best. They've spent time with Jesus, more time than anybody else has spent with him. They've had the best hands-on training for ministry than anybody could ever have. They've eaten with him. They've been able to ask him questions. They've seen the miracles. They've, they've seen the resurrected Christ. So now it's work time. Hey, we've got a mission to do. But you know what? Jesus didn't say do that. What did he say? He said, wait. How many of you like waiting? Anybody like waiting? You know, Teresa, I'm an impatient person, okay? I hate waiting. You know, I, I mean, I, let me confess here. I always have a book, almost always have a book in my car. Because, I mean, I, I, hate, I hate waiting at a stoplight. If I can read, because I, I, I read so much, I want to read, you know. I, I try to redeem, I, I'm redeeming the time. You know, it sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? I'm redeeming the time. You know, never go to a doctor's office because they're going to make you wait incessantly. But I hate waiting. But Jesus told the guys, Peter and the boys, he said, I want you to go back and I want you to wait. And so they waited. And, and you know, that's not the message for today, but we talked a little bit about this uh, a few months ago on the podcast. They had to wait until they received the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that look like, Jesus? Well, you know, I don't know, we're just going to have to wait. And then Pentecost came. And he said, when you receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit, then, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to Samaria and to the othermost ends of the earth. You have to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and thankfully, they waited. Peter and the boys waited. When we humble ourselves, God empowers us through his indwelling spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to everyone who humbles himself and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. But you see, there's one problem, one small problem. It's really not that small, but it's called the flesh. Even though we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved, as long as we're in these bodies, we will struggle with the flesh. We will struggle with our sinful nature. But again, we can turn to Paul as he writes to the Galatians and, and to us today. He says, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature or the flesh. 
You see, we need, you and I need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit in order to experience his power in our lives. You go ahead and come up. God's peace, God's presence, God's power. All of this, all of this is available to us if we are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit comes first. Humility comes first. Being honest with ourselves about who we are and be honest with God about who we are comes first. Who wouldn't want this in their life? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard for me to fathom who wouldn't want this, this in their life. And the question I leave for you to ponder this week as you take your notes and, and hopefully reflect on the message is are you poor in spirit? Are you honest with yourself about who you are? Are you honest with God about who you are? Are you honest with the people that you interact with? That leads to humility. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.